Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. With the chestnut harvest season approaching, we have our annual chestnut-themed episode today with a true living legend in the field of tree crops research, Dick Janes. On today's episode, we discuss Dick's decades of research on hybrid chestnuts, specific cultivars that emerged from his breeding work, limitations to commercial chestnut growing, nut tree culture in North America, the handbook he published with the Northern Nut Growers Association, and a variety of other related topics. Stick with us. Okay, so do you want me to call you Dick Chains? Yeah, that's fine. All your published work says Richard A. Chains. Yeah, of course. No, I'm known as Dick. So why don't we give our listeners a little bit of background of who you are, where you grew up, your early education or interests and how that led to the chestnut work and the work at the agricultural experiment station here in Hamden, Connecticut, where we're recording with the beautiful view of Sleeping Giant in the distance. And also sort of an explanation of what the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station is and Lockwood Farm and the Graves Plantation. Well, going way back in my background, my dad was actually an entomologist and I never thought I had any interest in insects or anything, but it was only later on I realized, well, hey, he was a insect scientist and my leanings were towards plants. But I guess my interest in plants, we always, growing up as a young kid, we always had a vegetable garden. And then when I was in fifth grade, we moved from New Jersey, Chatham, New Jersey, up to Hamden, Connecticut. And uh, my dad had a small apple orchard it took up about five acres. We had maybe eight acres all, all together. And I was in 4-H. In 1947, we planted some Christmas trees around what we consider the waste land around the apple orchard. Well, they did pretty well, and we got some more seedlings in maybe the next year or two years later. We started cutting down apple trees to make room for more Christmas trees. So pretty soon... The apple trees were gone and we were into the Christmas tree business. It's only in hindsight I realized that it was pretty much a lousy site. Some of the lowland was a floodplain from a small brook that went through there. It was a frost pocket, cold air drained down from the hillsides nearby. So we couldn't grow any true firs. We were pretty much confined to spruce, blue spruce, Norway spruce, white spruce. I married a local girl, Sally, and uh, we purchased land here where we are now, 13 Broken Arrow Road, the same town that my folks had moved up to. And so we have been growing Christmas trees for more than 75 years, a, a kid with my dad. He was doing all the work then, of course, but it was my project, so he said. <laughs> so that, I mean, that gave me a definite, well, plus I really liked the apple trees, pruning them and, and harvesting them. Uh, they were Macintosh. And, uh, back in those days, the trees, the apples that fell on the ground, we'd pick up, put in boxes, and my dad would take to a local cider mill. So I went to Wesleyan, liberal arts school, and the only plant science course I had there was one semester of botany. And so why did I go to Wesleyan? I don't know. It gave me a pretty good education and helped me become a little bit better writer because I was, that was not my forte in high school, uh, writing or spelling. Uh, 
In fact, one of the gifts I got from Arthur Graves was a dictionary. This was long before spell check. <laughs> so, you know, realized I had to go on to graduate school to specialize in something. And uh, Vince Cochran, my botany teacher, and one, one semester, I guess I also had a semester of mycology with him. I said, well, I'm thinking of forestry school or horticulture. He says, well, forestry is an applied science. That's fine if you definitely want to go into forestry. But otherwise, I su he suggested I go to like botany. He, he said, you can always go to horticulture and applied science from there. And I had worked a couple of summers on the farm crew at the Connecticut Experiment Station, hoeing weeds out in the corn and stuff. Then uh, I'd gone to Minnesota for two summers to work on spruce budworm uh, insect out there. Ely, Minnesota, the gateway to the wilderness. And that was, you know, first time away from home. and It's kind of exciting. Came back and worked another summer or two at the... Uh, experiment station in the genetics department, making crosses on chestnut uh, and corn uh, for Donald Jones, who was a famous corn breeder there. I was coming up to graduate from Wesleyan and Dr. Jones or others in the genetics department said, you can come do your research here at the experiment station if you can get into Yale and the botany department, which is what I did. And uh, that was great because uh, at times, of course, uh, myself included, people didn't know where I was because I was in the, enrolled in the botany department, taking some forestry courses, but doing all my research at the ag station. It worked out, and uh, four years later, with some struggling, of course, uh, I, I did get a PhD and was offered a, a position at the experiment station. And what year was that? 1961, gotcha. just a couple of years ago. <laughs> and they said they wanted me to continue on Chestnut, but to pick up another project. And they were pretty open as to what that might be. I thought about rhododendrons, azaleas, so much work had been done on them by amateurs and even other scientists. You know, looked at Andromeda, Pieris, Holly, I decided from weeding and holly, I really didn't want those prickly things around me. <laughs> but no, it was a legitimate option, but Elwin Orton at New Jersey was doing some good work with them. A graduate student in uh, the forestry school did a dissertation on native mountain laurel. And I said, whoa, state flower only seven species in the genus. I can handle that. There's a thousand species in ro of rhododendron and azaleas. So I decided to uh, work on mountain laurel. And that's another whole long story. But it's, it's very gratifying work. Uh, the generation time is, it's not an easy plant, but compared to chestnut, it was easy. Uh, generation time is shorter. So my dissertation was on chestnut, cytology and genetics of castania. I did chromosome counts uh, for one thing on the different species and uh, quickly learned that I definitely did not wish to be a cytologist. I, I think for each chromosome count that I might have succeeded in 
in doing, I ended up with a migraine headache from looking through a microscope. <laughs> but anyway, because Arthur Graves, Hans Nietzsche had made many crosses of chestnut and the, these offspring were at Sleeping Giant Plantation or at the Lockwood Farm or the Experiment Station, there was a lot of material to look at. And, and I made additional interspecific crosses uh, long and the short of it was, we confirmed that the species were quite compatible with each other, with, with rare exceptions. And so at that time, the work had already been done, or not the, not the work that you're talking about specifically, but chestnut work had been done by Arthur Graves. For yeah, he started in 1930. He was at, the I believe, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, and some of his first crosses were with the Japanese chestnut, which had probably been brought in in the late 1800s from Japan and may have been the way chestnut blight got into this country. He crossed the American chestnut with the Japanese so-called JA hybrids. That was, you know, 1930 and back about that time. But then he began to have access to Chinese chestnuts, which are reasonably resistant to chestnut blight. And so he crossed these J-A with C, for the, what shorthand became known as C-J-A's, mm -hmm. a three-way cross, half Chinese, and a quarter Japanese, quarter American. The problem was most of them did not have particularly vigorous upright growth and had more characteristics of the Asiatic species than the American. But then, you know, we went on and made second-generation complex crosses using some of those parents. And so Arthur Graves, I got to know him a little bit when I was making crosses there under Hans Nienstead. He, he was a, a wonderful gentleman. He was a taxonomist by training and did a great book on uh, trees and shrubs for uh, the Northeast in particular. I regret to this day. The book he gave me, I loaned out and never came back. <laughs> so I don't even have a copy anymore. Anyway, great guy, always well-dressed. He's fairly tall, uh, just a real gentleman, but dedicated to chestnut. He apparently, in the uh, 1920s or so, it's hard to picture him on a motorcycle surveying damage to the American chestnut from the chestnut blight. Mm. But, so that got him involved in chestnut uh, and thinking about it. And, and so he started making crosses. And he, he was never hired by the experiment station, but always had a close uh, liaison with the people. Uh, Donald Jones was head of the, the genetics department. And so the, the Arthur Graves plantation at Sleeping Giant then, was that private land? Yes, he and a fellow graduate student back, way back in the 19-teens, uh, had purchased that land. And then Arthur had bought it. He had a summer place there. Uh, and he eventually gave it to the state as part of Sleeping Giant with the understanding as long as chestnut research was done, it wouldn't become an integral part of the park as long as the chestnut work was going on. I see. Yeah, that landscape is, is beautiful today to go to and just see like this forest of mature 
chestnut trees yeah cgas like you mentioned and, yeah yeah and some of the original or trees that now are in cultivation and are grown in missouri and all over the place are the seedlings yeah. and the progeny of yeah. of those original trees okay so let's talk about your dissertation research in terms of the the crosses i have a pretty interesting where is it yeah i think i think this is something that you published and showing the cross yeah. yeah isn't that oh yeah that looks like uh, graduate work which is pretty wild i mean so it, it, we're looking at a diagram that shows every species of chestnut with lines drawn in this crazy octagon crossing over them from ozark chinkapin crossing over to japanese chestnut yeah. and Every, every species of chinkapin, I'm, I'm assuming what this shows is essentially that these different species are cross-compatible and can make... Exactly, project. exactly, and, and that's the results of crosses that I made, but also crosses that Graves and Hans Nietzsche in particular made. Yep, that was part of the dissertation. And so before this, had, had anybody known that these sort of crosses could be made in this sort of detail? I mean, it seems like... No, I... What I was able to do is pull together the work that had been done by predecessors there at the experiment station and maybe a little bit from what was in the literature and then actual crosses that I made. At the Arthur Graves Plantation, um, which I visit um, the, during harvest season, which I think is allowed. Oh yeah, yeah. why not? It's um, public land. <laughs> some, of the, some of the nuts that are there are incredibly sweet. You know, I've, I've had chestnuts before that are more like bready, I would describe them. And then I've had ones that are like, wow, that tastes like candy. And some of the ones I got, some of those that are in the candy side, I've harvested from the Arthur Graves plantation. And also there's ones there that, that have one nut per burr, which would mean that yes. they have the chinkapin genetics. Right. I wonder if the sweet nuts that I've gotten are the, are the chinkapin hybrids and if they've gotten that sweetness okay. from the chinkapins. Do you think that that's That could be. I guess I never got that many chinkapin nuts that I bothered eating. They're pretty small to peel. <laughs> but yeah, fine. They have good taste. And they're crunchy like a nut when they're fresh. Or ideally, you don't want to eat them the day you pick them up off the ground, you know, when they just dropped out of the burr. A week or two later when they've... Uh, some of the bitterness seems to disappear and... Uh, the sweetness becomes more prominent. From my point of view, the American chestnut is the best tasting mm. nut. Again, they're not very large, but bigger than chinkapins. And they're among the easiest to peel. The indomentum, that fuzzy coat over the kernel, that comes off very readily on American chestnuts. Not quite so easy, but reasonably well on a Chinese chestnut. And then the Japanese and European chestnut, especially as you get into the large nut selections, it's really difficult to get that indomentum off. And those nuts are, they're worthless, fresh. I mean, you know, European chestnut, I don't think any Europeans eat them raw. Mm. Uh, they're, they gotta be cooked and in whatever way you wanna do it, roasted. But the American chestnut, that's a fine, Raw nut. And so initially when you were doing the the research from the from the literature I've looked at, it looked like you were identifying like for four different characteristics, either timber, 
or nut production or ornamental qualities like as yeah. potential for somebody to have a yard tree yeah and the last one as a source for food for wildlife that's oh, the other one yeah definitely yeah. I mean, that was one of the most valuable attributes of the American chestnut. And all chestnuts tend to bear fruit annually, which is different than most nut trees, mass trees. Have a heavy crop and then they may go two or three years with none or very light, which is tough on wildlife that's trying to <laughs> fatten themselves up every annually, turkeys and other wildlife. Pheasants and yeah. foxes and deer. Yeah. Yeah. So from the, all of the crosses that you did and all of the hybrid chestnut work, was there any of the hybrids that stood out to you as things that, uh, so like the American chestnut maybe tasted the best in there. And I know you were reflecting for some yeah. timber form trees and some nut producing trees. To me, the CJAs, I have a lot of interest because I'm interested in more of the orchard setting. Right. And specifically that sleeping giant tree, you know, produces huge nuts every year and is really valued in the commercial yeah. nut industry today. Sure. And in some respects, I'm not sure it's all that different from some of the better Chinese selections like the Eaton. And I believe the Eaton came about because Arthur Graves gave a few seedlings to Mr. Eaton. And uh, Arthur probably told me about the trees, but anyway, but check them out few years in succession and it's like wow this is one great nut <laughs> as large as any that uh, you know well-formed tree that seemed blight resistant so yeah i was delighted with that uh, as a nut tree selection actually i have it i have the story here somewhere it's written down specifically it was in wallingford connecticut yes and yeah not too far actually from sleeping giant but it, but in wallingford I think it was in Wallingford. So that was something that Arthur Graves did before? You were well, it was a seedling. I mean, it, like myself, I mean, I gave away lots of seedlings, often from just open pollinated grown things, but we're normally we tried to select, you know, big nuts, like from Sleeping Giant or things like that. And uh, yes, uh, you know, I think he... And I, in different ways, tried to be Johnny Appleseed-like and giving away me, here, yeah, try this Chinese chestnut seedling or this hybrid seedling, see how you do. I mean, mostly for people who I think I anticipated they were going to be growing them as nut trees and not looking or expecting to get a forest tree in their backyard. And did you do that as part of the Connecticut Nut Growers Association or was it? Oh, partly, sure. You know, bring plants uh, to their meeting or for a plant sale so they could get some money to do whatever. We had a pretty active uh, Connecticut nut growers group. And of course, I shortly after I started working full-time at the experiment station, though, although before that, probably through Arthur Graves, he got me involved with the nut growers. He said, oh yeah, we gotta, he was, he'd publish articles once in a while in the Northern nut growers and anyway. So pretty soon I started going to their annual meetings, which were held mostly anywhere from the Midwest throughout the East. And uh, yeah, because I was working on chestnut, a nut tree, it uh, was a group I felt comfortable with. I think sometimes the administration wanted, was wondering what I was doing 
with a bunch of mostly amateur nut tree growers. But uh, anyway, I think once uh, we publish the first edition of the nut tree handbook, uh, they, they maybe felt a little bit better about what I was doing. We were in a, at the experiment station in a, basically in a publisher parish situation. We had to publish not just popular, but occasionally some scientific papers like chromosome counts or interspecific crosses, things that the average person might not see much value in immediately, but hopefully would have some long-term value. Why don't we talk about the, the handbook that you mentioned? Oh, yeah. Actually, there are two editions. The f- 19, I think... 1979? Uh, yeah, 69 and 79. They're basically 10 years apart. Well, when I got involved in the nut growers, George Sleet, who is a fruit breeder, Heritage Raspberry, I think, was one of his introductions. And L.H. McDaniels, I think he'd been head of the horticultural department, but he'd been retired. He joked about, yeah, the retirement system in New York is going to go bust with me because he he lived like 40 years beyond his retirement age. He was a wonderful guy, but very dedicated, like George Slate, to nut trees. And uh, as one of the kind of new guys on the block, uh, uh, George had been editor of the uh, annual report of the nut growers, and I think they... He probably got me involved with being an ed- the editor, <clears throat> and I did that, I think, for 19 years. Uh, we published a, a book from reports that were given at the annual meeting, uh, and it was often 150 pages or so. It was kind of fun working with amateurs as well as other scientists and uh, getting some pretty rough manuscripts and trying to make them so the information got across. But anyway, so... George and L.H. McDaniel, I'm sure they've been talking for years that they had to do a nut tree book. And they pointed their finger at me. (laughs) (laughs) After they'd worked on me for a year or so, I said, sure, but you each have to do at least one chapter in the book. Uh, Yeah, I contributed a couple of chapters myself, but basically I was the editor and uh, got, I don't know, 25, 30 nut tree people from across the country to contribute to it. And uh, uh, I learned, never having done that sort of thing before, it's a little bit like herding cats. Mm. Uh, the authors that were difficult to get manuscripts out of the first time, 10 years later, the same people, same characteristics. <laughs> it was, oh, I figured, oh, well, they just got to edit what they gave me 10 years ago, you know, and uh, not easy. But On the other hand, I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, dealing with those people, all good people. And so everybody wrote a chapter basically on a different nut tree, and you wrote a chapter on chestnuts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and yeah, propagation, uh, wildlife, uh, all the time. And I even had a, a guy here who was a wood craftsman, you know, did cutting boards and other things. I had him do an article on uh, crafts, yeah, whatever. And uh, so it, uh, and as I say, many of the authors were uh, just dedicated amateurs who knew more about hickories or hardy Persian walnuts than any, quote, scientist. So 
Yeah, that first edition, Spencer Chase was the executive secretary of the Nutcrawlers. He'd been executive secretary for a long time. We're doing this nut tree book and uh, it came up time to publish it. I talked to Spencer about what we're going to do and our annual reports had always been done by Humphrey Press, I think right in Geneva, New York. And uh, so we got a price from them. Well, it's going to be $15,000 to to publish this thing, maybe do 3,000 copies. And it's like, okay, we get $5,000 in the treasury. People like George Slate and L.H. McDaniel said, well, they would, they'd buy like 10 copies of the book prepay, basically, and whether they resold or gave the books away, who knows? I'm sure they gave them away. Well, that still left us short. So I went to the experiment station director, Jim Horsfall, and I said, we got a problem to publish this book can, from the Lockwood Trust, not state funds, but from, they had an independent trust fund. I said, could we borrow? Now, it may have been 5,000, it was at least 3,000. He agreed. And honestly, I don't think he thought was, there was a snowball's chance in hell that they'd get that money back. I was so delighted a year later to uh, walk in for the check. The book had sold so well, and Spencer's wife had uh, distributed it, uh, so there was minimal cost in, in distributing it. And then on the second edition, my wife uh, actually did the distribution. And we accumulated money to, uh, when the association first started making small grants to researchers. And at that time, do you think that there was a, a large interest amongst homeowners in planting nut trees? And at around that time was the time that my own grandfather planted a Carpathian walnut or two Carpathian walnuts in his backyard. I think there was some interest. And I mean, sort of, uh, I, you're recalling George Slate and L.H. McDaniels, between the two of them, they almost always, every year, had a popular article on nut trees in horticultural magazine or, you know, magazines that went to plant people uh, who might be interested in having a nut tree in their backyard of whatever kind. And and the really, really interested people, what they obviously hoped, they would join the Northern Nut Growers uh, as a member. So, I, you know, I'm not sure there was any great groundswell, but uh, those guys certainly helped keep interest across the country among gardeners. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that you had an impact as well, just driving up the road um, to come to, right now we're recording at Broken Arrow Nursery in Hampton, Connecticut. Driving up the road, I saw two, and I've I've seen these trees before, um, and always remarked that, you know, there's two Chinese chestnuts planted right next to each other in someone's front yard. Yeah, on Todd Street. Yeah. Yeah. And so is that somebody that you knew? Uh, we know them, but I, I honestly don't know where those trees came from. Huh. Yeah, whether they came through the experiment station or whatever. Our state nursery years ago, we would give them a couple thousand nuts from different trees, and they would sow them and, and distribute them along with other ornamental and Christmas, Christmas tree seedlings. I mean, you could purchase them for a really low, small price. I saw that in the back of one of these um, reports, annual reports. It says that you can contact a Hartford DP oh, yeah. or someone. Yeah. Why did they stop doing that? You know, I'd love to be able to purchase seedlings from the experiment uh, station. A new state forester 
decided that for some reason, you know, whether they didn't want to compete with private individuals, it, it's not that what they were doing was costing the state any money because the money they got back in paid for the upkeep and the maintenance and, and the employees that were working on producing the seedlings. But anyway, oh. uh, yeah, they used to have, uh, what did they call them? Conservation pack or something. You might get a nut tree, uh, you know. Christmas tree. Uh, yeah, Christmas tree seedling and, and uh, some other fruit trees, uh, hmm. you know, shad blow or something like yeah. that, you know. Seems like a great idea. I don't know why yeah. we would stop yeah. doing that. Very interesting. Okay. So we talked about Eaton a little bit, which, you know, I think is really, the, the story of that I think is actually in the handbook. I assume this was written by you. Yeah. Because um, it's an Eaton. The Eaton chestnut is an orchard or ornamental tree selected for its handsome glossy foliage. The original tree was one of several seedlings given to Frederick S. Eaton of Wallingford, Connecticut by Arthur H. Graves. It was named for Mr. Eaton by R.A. Janes in 1970. Although the parentage is unknown, it is suspected to be a seedling of Sleeping Giant, a Chinese by Japanese-American hybrid. In general, the tree characteristics are those of Chinese chestnut. And now this is, you know, I think it's crazy that the, the, the story of this tree, this is one of the most popular cultivars out there. Every, Eaton is all over the country, and that story is so cool. Are the trees still there in Wallingford? Uh, I might have to check with Sandy. I think she would know better than I. I've been by there and I'm like, uh, it's been so long and there's still some trees there. Uh, I'm not 100% certain. I'd have to go when they were fruiting to mm. identify it. And I think it's still there. Because that was on just somebody, in somebody's backyard, basically. Front right? yard, actually. Okay. Wow. Yeah, steep slope down to the road. Interesting. It's just crazy to me to think that you know, one of the most popular commercial cultivars of chestnuts yeah. has a story where it just came from somebody's front yard. And Yeah, you know, well, that's why you play the role of Johnny Appleseed. Yeah, every, every seedling is a, yeah. you know, a journey. Yep, going back a little bit, we got a grant at the experiment station from Mrs. Volk, uh, Ann Volk, and we called it the Village Smithy Fund. Long story short, it allowed us to do a cooperative chestnut planting uh, down in Virginia. Tom Deeroff was the forester for most of the time that we were involved in planting down there. And uh, we planted, we were able to uh, plant some controlled crosses down there, but honestly, we did a lot of open pollinated seed from trees like Clapper, which is an American hybrid chestnut. Uh, with pretty good form, but not totally uh, resistant to blight. But that was, yeah, we planted thousands of trees down there. They're still there. Probably some pretty nice ones, but I haven't had the opportunity to go back and look at them. It's just incredible to think of, you know, your work has spread its way out so far <laughs> across the United States. Okay, so the other the other tree, this, is, this tree is really special to me. I just think it's really cool how a cultivar of chestnut that has all over the place and is named after uh, a mountain range that I climbed as a child and spent a lot of time climbing up to the little observation tower and that sort of thing. Um, so Sleeping Giant, which is a hybrid and was released by Arthur Graves from the experiment station in 1960. This tree is one that I think is kind of one of the standouts from the, yeah. the Arthur Graves plot. Do you like it? Do you like the nuts from it? Yes. Yeah. No, it's a good one. 
Yeah, most of the, I mean, the initial input of that cross was, of course, to get more of a timber type tree, but hey, hey, there's a good nut tree. <laughs> I mean, it's also a beautiful tree. I love its, I love its habit. Yes. I also think that the sleeping giant tree is just a fantastic, you know, beautiful tree for public landscapes or for, you know, its ornamental characteristics, which was one of the original things right. that you select, were selecting for and looking for. And personally, I think that chestnuts, uh, in the public realm, there are people who want to harvest chestnuts. They're becoming more and more popular, but there are some concerns about like the burrs in landscapes. How do you, do you feel about the, like, was that something you ever thought about uh, with these trees when, with suggesting them for homeowners Did people come to you and say, Hey, my dog stepped on the burr. And when I went to the agricultural experiment station recently for a tour, one of the people who works there said, Oh yeah, you know, chestnuts in public landscapes, they can, you know, your dogs can pick them up and the birds are spiny and so and so. And I thought, I said, oh, I never thought about that. You know, I'll be honest, I haven't thought about it much easier, but I can remember the S8 Jap tree in the, what we call the West lot. Uh, I can remember a young kid, it couldn't have been more than four, uh, running over there in the fall barefoot oh, no. and got at the base of the tree and the ground was just covered with burrs. <laughs> I had to carry them out of there. Oh, no. uh, but anyway, uh, these days, yeah, it might be a concern, I guess, with dogs and... Uh, Liability and people. Yeah, it's... Uh, I've thought about this, about other things, and it's like things are... Oh, well, the ladders we used to use. A ladders. So A frame, at 12 feet high, and then I think a 10-foot ladder up the middle that you could raise up. And we'd climb up that and sit on the top of it. Well, you know, most of the land is sloping over there. but So you had to be very careful to orient the thing up and down the hill. And if it was too steep, you might tip over sort of backwards, you might say. But anyway, we never had a problem. I think those ladders went on the fire brush fire years and years ago and they, they do everything from a bucket now mm. uh hydraulic bucket certain friends of mine will just climb the tree and just knock them down you know or just oh knock them down yeah i was thinking about hand pollinating yeah. oh, making making yes, crosses yes. with putting bags on the tree and all that good stuff right yeah uh, which i'm sure you did a quite a bit of oh yeah as a summer worker and also as a researcher yeah yeah some people don't like the odor of uh chestnut when it's in bloom and, hey, we used to put the catkins in our mouth, and it's like, pfft, never really bothered me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they have an offending odor either. Some people, I guess, think they smell like sweat. Donald Jones had a house, neighborhood with small lots, but he always had a chestnut or two there. And his wife would say, Donald, chestnut's blooming. You've got to cut that down. <laughs> she hated the odor of the chestnut in bloom. <laughs> What about grafted chestnuts versus seedling chestnuts? A lot of, I've heard uh, stories of delayed graft failure sometimes with grafted trees. And just in general, the, um, something that you write about in the book, the Nut Tree Culture in North America book, is the need for grafting for uniformity for commercial, commercial use. Yeah. Um, but now there's tons of people who are planting trees just as seedlings all over the place, uh, for better or for worse. Is that why? Why do you think it is that the grafted chestnuts in the Northeast have this tendency to fail years later? 
there definitely is some incompatibility. Uh, as a general rule, uh, American chestnut and Chinese seem to be incompatible. If you stick within a species, you're better off, but you can even have trouble then. And the additional problem, of course, is you've got a wound when you do a graft. And uh, if there's chestnut blight around, uh, and it, whether the trees are resistant, or it can mess it up. They're at a precarious stage in their knitting and coming a successful plant. But speaking of that, in 1958, I was still a graduate student. I went down to see Flippo Gravett, who was a plant pathologist who'd worked on chestnut quite a bit. And I think he was about to retire. So they wanted me to come down and pick up some of their reprints that maybe I would distribute. And anyway, he took me out to an area called Scientist Cliffs. He was developing for scientists like himself to retire there. And they have a bunch of <laughs> nerds <laughs> living together. And I think that to some degree that actually happened. But anyway, he took me out and showed me American chestnut, a small grove that were at least 75 feet tall and maybe 30 inches in diameter. And so I brought back some cyan wood and grafted it. And there's one tree at the Lockwood Farm that's still there and it's huge. It's not pretty, it's had blight, but it's on a Chinese chestnut seedling. It, it, it sprouted once or twice and it's like, oh my God, look at that. It's not an American chestnut understock, it's a Chinese. Mm. Uh, so that's there's always the exception to the rule. Yeah, I think that tree is the state champion American chestnut for Connecticut. Yeah, I did an article on it a couple of years ago that was in uh, you know, the American Chestnut Foundation that's Flippo Gravit and, and the original tree, one of them. Uh, but, uh, I, and I, that, there's a picture of the one at the Lockwood Farm. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, this is the one at Lockwood Farm. Interesting. Yeah. Sally Jane's holding yardstick. <laughs> Just a note here from the studio. After a little bit of research and some help from Dr. Sandy, it turns out that the tree that we're talking about here, the Scientist Cliffs tree, is not actually the American chestnut champion for the state of Connecticut, that's a different tree that is nearby planted in the American chestnut survivor orchard at Lockwood Farm. Anyway, back to the episode. And I've seen in the in the uh, publications and in, on Dr. Sandy's website quite a bit of mention of scientist cliffs, so now I'm glad to know exactly what it is. She, I'm not sure, I have no idea why, she thinks it might be a hybrid with European. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you didn't see these trees growing in the woods, tall, like you expect an American chestnut to be, and anyway. Okay, so yeah, so grafted versus planted seedlings. I spent a lot of time, other people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how you're gonna vegetatively propagate some of these nice chestnut selections, whether it's eaten or something else. And apparently there's just no easy way yet. I mean, once in a while somebody can root some softwood cuttings, uh, grafting, as we've already discussed, has pluses and minuses. But, you know, if you're going to plant one or two trees in your yard... You want the good tree. Yeah, I mean, a seedling eh, may or may not look like the parent, yeah. especially if it was a seed that came from the sleeping giant 
chestnut plantation where you got so many different things going on there. If it came from a commercial Chinese chestnut planting for nut trees, uh, better chance you're going to get a pure Chinese. And if they, if that grower has selected for big nuts, then you're going to get mostly seedlings with good sized nuts. Some somewhere in one of these publications that you made so many years ago, I read that some, you noted that if you get the seedling of the tree and then graft that budwood to the seedling, you have the best. Yeah, I think it was. I learned about this technique. I think it was in a Korean. Uh, forestry publication, you take a, a nut that's gone through dormancy and you let it germinate and uh, you cut off maybe a quarter of an inch with a hypocotyl. You cut that off and that gets you down to what are basically the leaves of the emerging seedling, the stem, leaf stems going into the cotyledons, the two seed leaves. And you make a slice into through those uh, petioles, and you put a you wedge shape a dormant cyan into there, and then put this in a moist chamber or you know just in a container with mix and and keep it humid, and yeah, it can heal and grow into a, you know it's a way to propagate, and you don't even have to grow a seedling. All you need is some <laughs> nuts. So when you did that, was it the, the exact same nut of the tree, or was it just any nut in the same species? A little bit of both, probably. Gotcha. Yeah. If you want to propagate a uh, sleeping giant, yeah, it might be good to have sleeping giant nuts. Mm-hmm. Sure. When I first saw this diagram, and when I read this chapter, I, it was, I was in bed, and I just started giggling so much because it's so, you know, it's so crazy to think that you can do this, and it it's works. crazy, but simple. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so was this something that you did a lot, or... I did a few publications on it, and then we quit doing it. So uh, <laughs> nobody else has picked it up either, uh, as far as I know. Clearly, some problems. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it's worth uh, some further experimentation on my part this coming uh, harvest season. For more than from that part of my brain is not functioning over for remembering details of over forty years ago. Uh, Thank you for talking about that because I was totally blown away when I saw oh, this. Yeah. What do you think of the f- the future of hybrid chestnuts in New England? There's people planting chestnut orchards all over the place for nuts. You know, the timber for timber production that doesn't seem to be an, an interest for you know the people who in my world of nut nerdery these days. And some people seem to think that chestnut trees are sort of a climate smart transition for regenerative agriculture because chestnuts, you know, the, the makeup of a chestnut is similar to corn. And corn has this ne- negative impact on the natural ecology and on the landscape through tillage and through monoculture. So a lot of people have sort of pushed the idea that chestnut orchards could be not necessarily maybe a re- full replacement of corn, but it could at least take some of our diet and replace some of the carbohydrates and the things that we need at scale. But as you note in the the last page of your chapter in this book, where you talk about the limitations to chestnut culture, there still are some problems. One of the big things is marketing. Uh, If we just talk about that a little bit, like what do you think the future is for the chestnuts? Yeah, I mean, presumably, if you've got a good nut that's grown here, uh, why wouldn't the local grocery store be happy to get that instead of importing the European chestnut. 
and uh, you know, from my point of view, they have some flavor and peeling advantages. Uh, may not be quite as big as some of the large marron chestnuts, but uh, still. Yeah, I, I still think it's an uphill battle. I mean, I'm trying to picture in New England having the kind of landscape where you could put even an acre of Chinese chestnut seedlings and not have the squirrels come in. Uh, yeah, out in Ohio, I can picture it better, you know. They've got cornfields and they don't have all the trees where the squirrels are hanging out within a couple hundred yards and they're willing to walk that distance to get to a good food source. And I mean, at the Sleeping Giant plantation, the biggest thing that comes by and eats the nuts is deer um, because there isn't fencing to prevent the deer. And so there's people who, who set up and hunt the deer. But uh, if you get there early enough, you know, and then you have to compete with the weevils and you, there's a lot of things, but some, you know, some years yeah. there's a lot of weevils and some years there's not a lot of weevils. And it's kind of like, hmm, why is that? Not a lot of people have done studies on that that I'm aware of. But I'm still able to get there and get a decent amount of nuts, despite the weevils and dis wow. despite okay. the um, yep. despite the deer and turkeys and whatever else. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and to have them, you know, scattered in small parks, you know, rather than quote picturing a commercial orchard, but just trees that, if the nuts are there and they're not haven't already been taken by the wildlife or you get there in time to knock a few off the branches and, and uh, can rescue the nuts that way. Sure. I mean, it may not have the monetary value, but it may have satisfaction of going out and collecting some nuts and bringing them home and eating them. Stuffing a turkey or whatever. Yeah, right. Exactly. There's a nut orchard in Sunderland, Massachusetts, near where I go to school, called Big River Chestnuts, right on the Connecticut River. Oh wow! And um, you should you should go there. They they have um sort of a potluck thing, yeah. and I went to one um lap two years ago, where you know people were making chestnut bread, and and because it's gluten free, you know, there's lots of folks who are really interested in that side of it, oh, or yeah. the flour and yeah. Um, yeah. I, and it, it's a, a sort of a gathering uh, where many different folks from, you know, all walks of life come together and just celebrate yeah. chestnuts and all the products. Yeah, if it's in the, right, if it's in the floodplain or so of the Connecticut River, that I mean, yeah, the soil it sounds good. like you could have some open space there. So, you know, maybe the squirrels wouldn't be quite so bad a problem. Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. Uh, I'll have to ask how them. they deal with that. Yeah. The problem with chestnut, from my point of view, and you must run into this over the Sleeping Giant, is that the odds are pretty high they're going to be infested with chestnut weevil. Yeah. And uh, really need a biological control or something for the chestnut weevil, because that's a big downside. I mean, if you get the nuts, you know, as soon as they pop out of the shell and, and blanch them, uh, you zap the, what could be a, a just hatched larva, and you'll never know it was there. <laughs> uh, but let them sit around for a while, and uh, it's like, oh my goodness, look at all these maggot-like things. <laughs> yeah, it's discouraging. Yeah, um, and some of my friends actually will climb the trees and knock down the burrs before they're even, they fall yes. to avoid that. Yes, and if you hold them for a week or two, I'd put them in a damp, cool garage, uh, and uh, they'll mature and then with leather gloves you can pop them open or yeah. they begin to split you can deal with them yeah 
Well, it's just incredible to see the amount of uh, folks who go to the Arthur Graves research plot and, and, and they, they probably have a, you know, they're bringing their kids and people show up with bike helmets on to avoid the nuts. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, if you get a burr falling from up high, it yeah. can really get you. I remember Arthur Graves, he was bald and uh, he normally wore a hat, but he was known on occasion to get a burr <laughs> on the top of his head. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. funny. Could we take a moment to maybe just jump back into the cultivar topic for a second? I was hoping that we could take a moment especially to talk about Little Giant. Little Giant? It's this little tree. A Seguin hybrid? I took a picture of it the other day, and on Dr. Sandy's website, it has the parentage, and she says, Richard A. Janes collected open-pollinated seed from West Lot R23T12 and planted 76 seedlings at Lockwood Farm on Humphrey Hill in 1971. One of the 1971 trees had a heavy crop of nuts. Janes planted the 12 seedlings from these in road five. And then in 1977, a very small tree with large nuts and prolific production was later named Little Giant. And this Little Giant tree has become... Yeah, I didn't name it. Yeah, she must have. Well, maybe she... Uh, she... I think. Uh, okay, that's got to be a Seguinai Chinese offspring and through more than one generation. And uh, actually... Yeah, the original crosses were made by uh, Hans Nienstead, a Danish uh, guy who got his forester degree at Yale. And when I worked a couple summers at the experiment station, uh, he was was there and I made crosses and chestnuts for him and Dr. Graves. And I honestly, I regretted that I didn't pursue those seedlings a little more. Because, I, uh, yeah, you can get a small tree, hopefully, with a good-sized nut. But, uh, yeah, as you know, probably better than I do, there are a number of small or aspiring commercial orchards. And it's like, whoa, okay. Yeah. It's, as you noted, uh, all the problems with chestnut. But also, some of that is also problems that you run into on other nut trees is, you know, how to keep the squirrels away, are the particular insects and diseases that bother them. And uh, I mean, wildlife, squirrels, birds, chipmunks, uh, filberts, you, you never harvest the filbert around here. Uh, it's sad. Uh, so commercially, uh, you know, you need big blocks of land that you don't have woods right up to it uh, to help keep wildlife away. I mean, just, one of the problems. And so a place like Connecticut, I mean, I had thought long and hard for years about, okay, is there a place for commercial nut trees in Connecticut, whether it's chestnut or something else? And we had some very active, energetic nut growers, amateurs, but who would like to have done commercial things, you know, on propagation and selling their trees. Uh, one guy named Messner, uh, he did some of this, but um, long and the short of it is, I mean, you could, I'm, almost the best you could do is grow seedlings and, uh, and sell seedlings. But if you're only gonna have a couple of trees in your yard, you really would like a clone. You want Eaton or Sleeping Giant or Little Giant and uh, go from there. Uh, so I, I'm always a little frustrated 
and I was thinking about Arthur Graves, he was an eternal optimist, and every cross, that was going to solve the problem of getting back the American chestnut, you know, he was just so positive, and uh, I've always thought, had a more realistic view of, of some of the limitations, uh, especially at the experiment station, uh, a breeding program on chestnuts, I mean, you got to be able to grow not hundreds, but thousands of trees and, and grow them for more than just a year or two. It's not like even tomatoes, or which are an annual crop, or corn. You, if you go to Hawaii in the winter, you can grow two crops. Or wheat, you can grow a million plants on an acre or something. Uh, but you can't, it, it's a tough uh, thing with chestnut. So I'm kind of delighted after almost a hundred years of different people breeding chestnuts that they've taken a wheat gene and introduced it into the American chestnut. So it's 99 plus percent pure American chestnut. And, uh, you know, they're going through the, I think they're pretty well along now in being able to release it. Uh, it's taken them years and years, but uh, I'm like, oh, wow, because, you know, Graves spent a lifetime, Neenstead spent years there, Sandy spent a lot of time. Yeah, I spent a lot of time making crosses and, and the American Chestnut Foundation, bless their heart, they've gotten tremendous support and done a lot of breeding based on Burnham's uh, work. He worked with grains, but he thought he could transfer that knowledge to chestnut. I was never, have never been very confident that back crossing to American chestnut, you would get a blight resistant tree, but he was introducing that work at the time I was leaving the experiment station. So I, you know, been very reluctant to voice my concerns. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's like, hey, okay. Uh, but the, the American Chestnut Foundation, incredible, the amount of resources they've been able to get. I mean, they've they've got a tremendous staff and it's all on what we would call Monday. soft money. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we never felt we had enough money at the experiment station, but it was in a sense hard money. I mean, it was in the annual budget. So we've talked quite a bit about chestnut trees, which makes sense as it was your research area. But I know that you have an interest in other nut trees as well, having been part of the Northern Nut Growers Association. And even where we're sitting, I mean, we're surrounded by a variety of very interesting tree crops in this uh, landscape here at Broken Arrow Nursery. Are there any other nut trees or just fruit trees you wanted to talk about? Oh, at least one other nut tree that's here in the yard, uh, a pecan mm -hmm. uh, that I got from Earl Cully, who is uh, quite a nurseryman out in Illinois. Uh, he introduced heritage, river birch, among other commercial trees. Uh, anyway, before we actually built this house in 19, moved in in 1965, but a couple of years before that, he sent me some nut trees. That's a hybrid hickory over there. But he sent me a major pecan, which is hardy northern pecan, right? Well, if you're in the Midwest, uh, it grew up and I don't know how old it was, 10, 12 years and had nuts, but they wouldn't fill. Uh, 
not hot enough. We don't get enough BTUs during the summer, especially evenings. And uh, that may change, but... Uh, <laughs> so I grafted it back to a shagbark hickory Glover variety, which, interestingly, the nuts, if you put them on an anvil and tap them with a hammer, they'll crack open and you get two halves. They're as easy to crack open as a pecan, if not easier. But I gotta tell you, the squirrels get them mostly. Every two or three years, we get a decent crop, but uh, we don't get very many nuts. I have a um, pig nut hickory that seeded itself in the front of the house, and I'm hoping to get some scion of uh, Granger uh, shagbar hickory and top, oh. top graft it, because okay. Granger produces a yeah. massive nut. And with the, um, the Carpathian walnuts that are planted behind the house, I haven't eaten a, a single one. So, but the I will say the heart nuts that are planted at Lockwood, they seem to, it doesn't seem like they get totally knocked out by by squirrels. I don't know what maybe because the landscape is more open there. Yeah, it's right along Evergreen Ave outside the fence there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, right I'll admit years ago trying to get I mean getting a few nuts from almost every tree in that collection. There are fewer trees now than there used to be. Yeah. They've uh, They've been there forever. They haven't grown particularly fast. Not much soil, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but the you know the landscape there. I mean, there is woods in some places, but if there's just maybe enough predation from hawks and other things that the yeah. yep. the things are kept. And also, there's a fence, so there's no deer. Any other things that you loved? Oh. You know, you worked with more I, chestnuts. It seemed like was the focus of a lot of your research, but I know that you had. Well, the cow of the mountain laurel. Uh, Kalmia and its relatives. Uh, I mean, this was a genus, the native mountain laurels and the other species. Those species don't cross particularly well with each other. Uh, but in trying to make the interspecific crosses among the species, I began to learn how much variation there was in a native mountain laurel that nobody had appreciated. And uh, so I spent a lot of time making crosses among some of these things. I mean, there are little leaf laurels, there's willow leaf laurels, all different flower colors and, sh and uh, you know, patterns in the flowers. And uh, as I say, compared to working with chestnut, it was relatively easy uh, <laughs> uh, crop to work with. And uh, yeah, the, uh, the book that I did on it, uh, pretty well received. And, uh, in a sense, summarizes all the work I did at the experiment station, hopefully in terms that people could understand. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I find this book very readable, The um, Nut Tree Culture in North America. You had asked to say something about the experiment station. Yeah, they, they serve a lot of different interest groups in the state. Uh, I can't even name you all. I mean, they got chemistry, biochemistry departments. They do a lot of analyses of foods, minerals, uh, and vitamins, etc. Entomology, they're doing a lot of work. Uh, with what's now on the front pages, of, of course, the work with uh, ticks and tick diseases. Plant pathology, they deal with a range of things there. Yeah, as I started there, it was a genetics department, but it ultimately became a forestry department. They're the oldest experiment station in the country. They predate the land-grant university. So they split their funds with Yukon and 
unlike every other experiment station that's administered through the university, actually the experiment station is through the governor's office. Huh. Yeah, so they're, they're quite independent of the university. Interesting. Yeah, it was a great place to work, but after I, I realized I was vested, I had 25 years experience, I wasn't old enough to collect retirement, had the Christmas trees going and uh, decided to start a nursery. Yeah. And uh, I'd always admired all the different plants that Western Nurseries had up there. Oh. Uh, in fact, I used to go up <clears throat> every year and walk through their fields of mountain laurel looking for unique color forms, pinks and red-budded. Um, and anyway, I said, oh man, I should have worked up here a couple summers to learn all the different plants that they had. Well, there were changes in the family, different generations, and, and they had to sell a lot of their land. Um, so they, they, they still have a great garden center, but they don't grow the diversity of plants that they used to. Um, but anyway, I think that's where I got some of the inspiration of growing unusual trees and shrubs propagating them uh, and uh, doing a lot of grafting and, and rooting of cuttings uh, to grow these unusual plants. I, the one thing you don't want to do in a nursery like ours, I, you can't compete with the box stores and, and the huge growers, you know, with hundreds or a thousand acres of plants. So uh, by being, growing unusual plants, uh, seems to be, we've got a good market, things are going well. Yeah, no, I, I think that the uh, the selection of stuff that you have here is pretty remarkable. I've purchased uh, sunflower pawpaw from here. I got a shisandra vine from here, which is a, the five flavored vine from, um, from China. Well, yeah, I don't know. I think that this is one of the most premier. Also, you have persimmon varieties. Have you had the person? Have you, have you, had uh, those? we've got a John Rick, a big tree right out here. And we, ha it's, it's a dioecious, it needs a male or, or pollen, which we don't have for it. So the persimmons are a little bit smaller than typical if they had seeds in them, but they don't have seeds in them, which is kind of great. Yeah, that is great. Yeah. So it's a, yeah. like a parthenoparthic yeah. fruit then. Just... Uh, yeah, exactly. Very cool. Exactly. We do have some pawpaws around, sunflower, and we have some of uh, Neil Peterson's selections, which are great. Uh, one of them, the, the graft died, but I think he grafts them on seedling understocks that are from the selected trees. So the understock is almost as good as the name cultivar, That's fantastic. which is great, uh, you know, instead of some little tiny witsy thing. And so do you, do you eat the pawpaws and the persimmons every year? That do you uh, it's amazing how few people are interested in the persimmon, but the, uh, the pawpaws, yeah, Sally and I love it uh, on salad. Uh, like uh, you just cut them up and, uh, like avocado. That's interesting. I've never thought to have uh, pawpaw on salad before. Oh, you'll love it. I mean, <laughs> it, it works fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The persimmons are my favorite fruit, so I'm surprised to hear that. I like them, but my kids, my wife, nah. <laughs> she made persimmon bread, I mean, which is fine, but uh, yeah, they, like most of those things, there are a number of different ways you can use them. But, uh, if people want any trees from Broken Arrow Nursery, they can check out brokenarrownursery.com? Yes, yeah. Most of our plant list is on there, or they can call and see if we have something or can get it. 
Mm. Yep. Uh, yeah, the pawpaws and persimmons are, ah, they're really difficult to propagate and they're very expensive and difficult to get from other growers. Frightfully expensive. If anyone wants to, to reach you directly, do you want to say anything about it? Like if there's somebody who really wants to write you a letter or something like that? Or I guess they can just... They can, they just... can contact me through the nursery. It's probably the easiest way. Okay. I mean, well, thank you, Dick, for this interview. It has been absolutely fantastic. I'm sure that our listeners learned quite a bit about hybrid chestnuts and all the other topics that we covered today. Listeners, if you stuck around this long, thanks for sticking with us, and we'll see you next time.